When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... And I it felt felt right. I was so And I just happy. thought, well... I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Aaron Barker, back this week to bring you two of our favorite stories that have aired in years past, this time on the theme of discovery, from Silita Guy and Maya Nemisto. Our first story is from Silita Guy. It was recorded in September 2017 at Transac in Toronto as part of Science Literacy Week. When I started my PhD, I made one thing abundantly clear. Under no circumstances did I want to do any type of fieldwork. Now, this always surprises people, like how can you be an ecologist and not want to work hands-on with the animals you study? But the truth is, guys, fieldwork is hard. Hours are long, animals don't cooperate, and situations can be dangerous. But despite this, you know, five months into my PhD, one of my supervisors calls me into his office and he tells me that he wants me to work with a postdoc on a project examining the behavior of bats living in an urban park. Now, as much as I reminded him that this was the last thing I wanted to be doing, he told me it was a wonderful career building opportunity, which was his way of saying I didn't really have a choice. Um, so I started to think of all the ways that I could fake excitement for doing the one and only thing I didn't want to do in my degree. But you know what? Over the next few months, as Krista, my postdoc partner, and I started to get ready for the project, I actually did start to get kind of excited. And I found myself thinking, hey, I can totally do this whole fieldwork thing. And that incurable optimism lasted me right up until my first night in the field. And then it was like, all of my worst nightmares had come true. We got rained on. I would sit in the dark for hours and catch nothing. Um, equipment broke. I had to deal with people trying to sell me drugs and steal my stuff. I couldn't adjust to nights. And to make matters worse, the project wasn't even working. I wasn't getting the usable data that I had hoped for. I absolutely hated it. Now, near the end of the summer, Chris and I found this colony of bats living in the chimney of a four-story house with a split roof. So we decided that to capture this colony, Krista was going to get on the upper section of the roof, about four stories up, and my job was going to be to hold the ladder and provide moral support from the lower section of the roof, about three stories up. And so Krista and I get into position, no problem. And after about an hour or so, she's handing me down a bag full of 30 bats, now, I don't know if you've ever wondered what a bag full of bats looks like. 
I'm guessing probably not until this point in time. Um, but together, the bats formed a mass about the size of two fists put together. And all individual parts of that mass were kind of squirming, trying to claw their way out of the bag, making a ton of noise as they did so. And the worst part about a bag full of bats, though, is that they smell so incredibly bad. But irrespective of the stench, the trapping had been a success. And so now it comes time for Krista to get down from that upper section of the roof. And so, you know, I assume my ladder holding position as she slowly begins to lower herself down to the first step of the ladder. And then she misses. Now, as I saw Krista come tumbling down from that upper section of the roof, I thought to myself, this is it. I'm going to die. She's going to die. And like all of my worst fieldwork nightmares will come true. Spoiler, I'm here talking to you today, so no, nobody died. Um, I managed to soften most of Chris's blow using my body. Um, and then as she hit the deck and started rolling towards the edge of that lower section of the roof, I lunged forward, grabbed her by her belt just before she went over the edge. Like I said, fieldwork can be dangerous. And this near-death experience had reaffirmed for me why I wanted no part in it. No, thank you. I was done. Um, so Chris and I just, you know, we decided to skip discussing what had happened and just get on with processing our bats. Now, when I talk about processing, for every bat that I capture, I have to collect information on things like age and weight and sex, as well as give everybody a microchip so that I can tell them apart later. We decided it would be best to take our bats back to High Park and process them in one of those big shelters full of picnic tables. And so we start processing, and it's not going that great. None of our bats are cooperating. Now, to be honest, I can't really blame them, because if someone showed up at my house, threw a bedsheet over me as I was trying to leave, and then poked and prodded me while shining a bright light in my face, I'd probably be pretty pissed off, too, to, to be honest. Um, but to make you know, complicate matters, it was also getting insanely cold. And not only was I freezing, but so were my bats. Now, when bats get cold, they go torpid. Torpor is kind of like this mini hibernation strategy that lots of small mammals use to save energy. Torpid bats are slow and sluggish, which means when you try to release them, they try to fly, can't, and then kind of just go thud on the ground. And so for every bat that we processed, I had to somehow warm them back up. The best way to warm up a torpid bat is to take that torpid bat, put it in a little cloth bag with all its other torpid friends, and then take that cloth bag full of bats, put it down your shirt, preferably in your armpit. You know, y'all are laughing like you think I'm joking. I'm being serious. That is like our standard operating procedure for warming up bats. And so that's how the next few hours went. Every bat that we processed went in the bag full of bats back down my shirt. And then, you know, all of a sudden we start hearing these voices getting progressively louder. They're, they're hooting and they're hollering and are clearly quite inebriated. All of a sudden this like group of like 17-year-old kids comes into view. Um, and before I can even think about hiding, one of the girls calls out, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing over there? I will never be able to adequately describe to you the sheer panic I experienced as these 12 drunk 17-year-old kids descended on my picnic tables. All I could think was that one of these kids was going to get bit. I was going to have to drive them to the hospital, explain to a public health official why they needed a rabies vaccine, and then I was probably going to get sued by their parents. Um, I thought about my fancy $1,200 radio receiver going missing. I thought, you know what? I think these kids are drunk and high enough to like try pit tagging each other, try microchipping each other. It's, it's happened before. It has happened before. Um, 
But you know what? None of that happened. The kids asked what we were doing, and they asked if they could watch. So I told them, well, sure, so long as you don't touch anything. And for the next hour and a half, these 12 drunk 17-year-old kids sat and watched me process bats and asked me some of the most insightful questions I've ever been asked. Like, I just, it was crazy. I didn't think that they could do that. Okay, well, 11 of the 12 did. The 12th was like passed out on the floor. You know, I digress. Um, it was, it was, you know, they were so incredibly excited to see science being done and their excitement was infectious and everything was going so well right up until the cops showed up. Next thing you know, we've got these headlights being shone on our picnic tables and this voice gets on a bullhorn telling us that we have to disperse because the park is closed. The kids grabbed their stuff and with rushed thank yous and goodbyes, they took off into the darkness. Then this big, burly police officer gets out of his car, comes over to Krista and I and asks what we're doing. So I explain. Looking skeptical, he asks if he can see one of these so-called bats. <laughs> like, who makes up something like that? Like, really? So anyways, Krista obliges. She pulls one of the bats out of the bag, shows him. He seems satisfied, but also slightly terrified, which I did not expect from a man his size. You know, he then looks back at me, and all of a sudden his eyes start getting really, really big. And in a very serious voice, he leans in and he says, Ma'am, did you know that your shirt is moving? <laughs> well, I looked down at my shirt, I looked back up at the police officer, and I said, of course! I've got 25 bats down there and they're starting to warm up. Um, I need y'all to understand that at that point in time, my response seemed perfectly normal, but retrospectively, I understand how crazy I must have seen sitting in the park at 1 a.m. with 25 bats down my shirt for no apparent reason whatsoever. The police officer took off pretty fast after that. Okay, so 3 a.m. rolls around. And for the record, just when you think, think things can't get any more exciting, they always get more exciting at 3 a.m. Chris and I are left with a single bat to process, when all of a sudden, we hear this growling in the bushes behind us. Now I'd like to say that in those next moments, Chris and I acted accordingly, but instead, we both screamed, jumped up on the picnic table, and like held on to each other. We unanimously decided, nope, this is not for one night. I'm done. We're out. Lucky bat number 30 got to go free without any processing. Krista frantically begins packing up all the field equipment. I then sprinted over to our car and turned on the headlights in the hopes of scaring off whatever was in the bushes. I then remembered that I still had like 29 torpid bats down my shirt because you forget those sorts of things in, in that kind of situation. Um, and so I cranked the heater in the car, I put the bats under the heater, and within minutes, the bag was squirming. I ran out, I grabbed the bag, I ran out to the center of the main road going through the park, and I began to release the bats one by one, telling them to be free. I think that if there had been bystanders, it might have looked a lot like the scene from The Wizard of Oz, where I was the Wicked Witch of the West telling my pretties to fly. Fly, my pretties, fly. I, I really do think that the, ridiculous, the ridiculousness of that night is kind of what kept me going. Uh, it showed me that I could handle a lot and still have a really good cathartic laugh about it later. Uh, since that night, I've done a second summer of intense field work. It was hard, but I have some really cool data to show for it. Along the way, I've had a lot of other hilariously ridiculous experiences.
um, but none quite as ridiculous as the Night of the Colony. As for the girl who didn't want to do any field work in her PhD, I'm currently trying to figure out how I can get myself down to Panama next summer to work with exotic species. Turns out fieldwork kind of was my thing. It only took a near-death experience, 12 drunk teenagers, one police officer thinking I was batshit crazy, and a Wizard of Oz moment to help me realize it. Thank you. Silita Guy. Since she told the story, Silita has completed her PhD at the University of Toronto, where she studied bats as carriers of viruses, and she now works as a data scientist. Her first children's book, Chasing Bats and Tracking Rats, was published by Anik Press. As always, remember you can check out our website for upcoming live shows all around the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., as well as opportunities to learn about how to tell your own science story through one of our storytelling workshops. For more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures, follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like all of us at the Story Collider, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash thestorycollider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story today is from Maya Nemisto. It was recorded in January 2012 at Union Hall in Brooklyn. The theme that night was the wilderness. Um, So on uh, one particular day uh, on board Clearwater, um, we were actually having some, some mechanical issues, which happens from time to time. And uh, the vessel was in Yonkers, um, so we had a group of students that came down, and they were expecting to go out sailing. Of course, on this day, we couldn't. Um, but luckily, it was a great group of students, um, and so we decided to keep them on board and do our uh, science education program dockside. And the group came on, and we split them up into, into little groups. They went from a learning station to a learning station, um, doing all these great scientific inquiry experiment, experiments. You know, there was a group over on one side that was looking through microscopes at at copepods and dinoflagellates and other kinds of plankton. And there was a, a group of students on the other side of the vessel looking in the, in the tank um, to see what kind of fish we'd caught and figuring out what they were using a dichotomous key. And uh, there was another group on the other side of the vessel that were um, doing, you know, reverse titrations to see what kind of, uh, what the levels of dissolved oxygen were in the river that day. And essentially, they were going about the vessel um, doing all these, um, you know, scientific hands-on experiments. Um, and the take-home that we were trying to drive uh, into um, each kid's head was that um, this river used to be a really dirty place. And when Pete Seeger and his friends came out uh, um, and decided to clean it up, um, they built this vessel that they're on right now. And it's a great story of this individual who's changed the, the course of the world, basically. And each of them, we want to encourage, you know, each of these kids are, you know, special little snowflakes, and someday they can change the world, too. <laughs> um, so... 
what made this day different than others <laughs> was that the kids were actually really great, for one, and they're eating it up. You know, they're doing the science experiments, and I love it. Um, but you know, they're not really buying the message that the, the river's cleaner than it was, because they keep saying, you know, it really kind of smells bad, miss. It smells bad today. I'm like, oh, no, you know, it used to be really dirty, but today, you know, like, you know, it's gotten so much better than, than 40 years ago. And they're like, no, I mean, this is fun, but it smells really bad. <laughs> the other thing that was different about being um, on the dock instead of out in the middle of the river is that the public, instead of coming to the banks of the river and seeing us majestically sail by, um, they can actually come right up to the boat and kind of look at us while we're standing there. And this one guy walks down, um, and he's about to, he's kind of an older gentleman, he, he's a little hunched. He might have a lazy eye and like a little bit of a limp. <laughs> and he's gonna, he's about to come and talk to, uh, the kids. And so I kind of swoop in and a lot of people come up to the vessel and they want to tell us about their personal experience with, uh, with Pete Seeger and like what, you know, he's done for their lives and all this stuff. So I'm expecting to be like a great listener and, and, uh, hear what he's got to say about, um, about Pete. But this guy was a little bit different. Uh, he's he's really agitated actually. He's like he's really riled up, and and he's talking about the same thing the kids were talking about. That this water is like really really dirty. It's coming out from over here. He points up river about a hundred feet, not very far away at all, to where the Sawmill Creek um, comes flowing out of Yonkers and into the Hudson. And he's saying like he's told everyone about this. He's told the authorities. He's told the city officials. Nobody's listening to him. He knows where it's coming from. And no one will help him. And so he's really excited because Clearwater's in town, and we're seen as this, like, you know, vessel that, you know, we're the environmental flagship of America. And so people imagine us sailing along, and in our wake, things are, like, green and clean. And so, you know, we're swooping into town, and we're his saviors, essentially. And so I, you know, listen to him for a little while, and, and I start having this internal debate where I'm trying to figure out if he's crazy and if maybe I should do what I sometimes do on the boat when I don't want to talk to a passenger, like, you know, you grab your knife and you put it in your mouth and you go and you pull on something really important. <laughs> but we're not sailing, so I can't do that right now. <laughs> and the other thing is, is, he's kind of right. This isn't normal for, for the river. It really doesn't smell this, like this anymore. It has gotten a lot cleaner. And so... Then the kids sort of start to perk up their ears, and they, they're kind of gathering around and, and listening. And I was just telling them, you know, like, we all have to care, and we all have to do something. And now they're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then he says, the older gentleman says to me, you have to help. Come with me. I'll show you. And the kids are sort of in a circle around, and, you know, their mouths are gaping open, and they're like, uh-huh, you have to help. <laughs> and so with a little bit of reluctance I take a step from the boat onto the dock and then I start to follow him so he takes me from the dock over to the sawmill creek where you can see it's you know it's foul it smells like someone vomited in there like it's pretty bad and we walk up the creek under the railroad tracks and into Yonkers. And all this time, he's sort of like waving his arms around and telling me about how the creek used to flow like this, but now it's all been paved over. So he's kind of taking me back in time to way, the way it used to look. Um, the creek now goes in these culverts underneath the, the city of Yonkers. You can't even see it. And then he gets to a point where he's like, well, the river or the creek used to flow this way, but really the shortcut's over this. 
you know, hill. And I look up at this hill. I mean, who knew there were mountains in Yonkers? I mean, this is pretty significant. Uh, so I start walking up the hill, plodding along behind him. And I start to, you know, kind of wonder, like, I wonder if I'm being kidnapped right now. <laughs> I mean, I could, like, see the headlines. You know, sailor is abducted and mysteriously gives no fight. <laughs> so uh, we walk to the top of this mountain. And there's a school up there. And we walk through the schoolyard. And there's kids. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of okay. There's kids, you know. And then we go down the other side, and he points to where the you can see the creek again. And uh, there's trees around it and kind of steep embankments down to it. And so we walk over to it and kind of, like, scramble down all the way to the water. And um, he points. He's like, there it is. And there's this, there's this pipe coming out of the side into the, into the stream. And all this yellow, thick, kind of milky, foul water is pouring out of it. And just above that, the, the creek is real clean. It's, you know, clear and looks nice. He's like, that's not all. And so we climb up, and he shows me where there's a road and an overpass that looks kind of like an old railroad trestle. Uh, and there's water pouring out of that, too. And it's the same foul-smelling water. And, and so I'm having another one of these internal debates where I'm like, okay, great. You know, he's kind of legitimate. I'm not getting kidnapped. This is good. <laughs> and also, this is terrible. Look at this stuff pouring out of here. How can this happen? And so I start to go into my, like, wilderness first responder medical training mode and, and like, this is an emergency. And I look around and, like, are there any live wires? You know, Does he need a tracheotomy? Can I, can I splint something? And everything seems to be fine. And then I remember, like, part of the medical training I've had is you, you know, if you're not really that far from help, you should probably just call for help. Um, so what I did next, I'm actually kind of embarrassed about. Um, I actually called 911. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. <laughs> and I start talking to the 911 responder, and she's like, um, you know, where are you? I'm in Yonkers. And she's like, what's your emergency? It's pollution. And <laughs> and meanwhile, the, the gentleman that I'd followed out into the woods kind of sidesteps away from me. <laughs> uh, eventually, you know, she calms me down a little bit and tells me, the police aren't coming. <laughs> but I think when the police can't come and help you, that is the wilderness. So I'm like, well, we got to figure something out. So we sit down and we're looking at this like foul putrid water pouring out of this pipe. And I remember, actually, I know somebody that I could call that would be a lot more helpful. Um, so there's uh, there's another vessel, another boat on the Hudson that we um, that we work with sometimes. It's called the Riverkeeper, and their captain John Lipscomb does these trips up and down the Hudson where they monitor. Um, to see if there's anyone polluting, and if they find someone who's polluting, then they sue them. It's like, this is the perfect person to call, right? <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> uh, so I call him, and he said, I mean, he is a really receptive audience. He is like, yes, we just did a transect across there. We were doing, we were testing for enterococcus, which is a bacteria that is found in human intestines, and it's a good sign that there is sewage in the water when you find it. He's like, a couple days ago, they had gone past Yonkers, and they found high levels of this enterococcus, but they couldn't figure out where the bacteria was coming from. I found it. <laughs> so he's like giving me a mission. I love missions. I'm so excited. It's like CSI Yonkers. Like, I'm all about this. So I go 
I'm supposed to get three samples of, of water. So I get these bottles and I fill the samples with water and I'm supposed to take pictures of everything I do. So I'm taking pictures of, you know, the water pouring out of there. I'm taking pictures of my watch to show what time it is. I'm showing pictures of my face, like I'm filling it up. And <laughs> he recommends I let the authorities know, which I don't think is a good idea. I tried that. <laughs> um, so I gather these samples, um, I take all these pictures, and then um, I head back to the boat with this guy. Um, we get back there, and the kids are just wrapping up their um, their program, and they're, you know, they were wondering where I went because um, they're kind of excited, you know, to see what happened. I came back and I showed them the samples, and I explained what we were gonna do. We're gonna send these um, these samples off to the lab to incubate for 12 to 18 hours, and then see if there's any enterococcus in it, and that would be like the evidence to figure out who is doing this. So they're excited, and um, you know, I I don't know what's gonna happen, and they don't know what's gonna happen, but we'll find out someday. And then. Uh, so the next morning, um, it's one of those beautiful fall Hudson River days where the leaves are like just starting to turn and there's a good wind and the kids show up and we can, we can go sailing today because our um, mechanical issue has been resolved. And we pull away from the dock, which is a relief to everyone because that stench has been hanging around the boat all night where we all sleep on board the vessel. And so we pull out in the middle of the river and we you know, hoist the sail. The kids are hauling on the halyards and get the 3,000-pound mainsail up in the air. And it's just it's one of, a gorgeous day. And then over on the horizon, we see the Riverkeeper boat coming down. I'm like, this is awesome. And I show all the kids. And they're like, yeah, this is so cool. And, and then he comes right next to us. And I'm, ahoy! And he's like, ahoy! And <laughs> Nobody really said ahoy. But uh, <laughs> what he did say, though, um, Captain John Lipscomb was like, those samples, there was more than 24,196 colonies of enterococcus in, in those 100 milliliter bottles. I mean, I didn't really know what that meant either, so don't feel bad. <laughs> That's, what he said was it's 400 times the legal amount that can be in the water. So this is something serious was going on. And he wants the pictures. He's got to put together this whole case. So I like scramble down below decks and upload all the pictures onto this flash drive and then I'm scrambling back up on deck and I remember that everything in the boat on the boat eventually falls in the water. So I go back down, I put this uh, this flash drive in a plastic bag and then I wrap it with tape and then put another plastic bag around it and then some more tape and then I like put a bunch of stuffing in it so it'll float in case it falls in the water and more tape and another bag until finally I have something that's like roughly the size of a football. <laughs> and I go back up on deck and uh, he comes up alongside and I I loft this this football sized <laughs> precious package out into the river, and miraculously it lands right in the cockpit of his boat. <laughs> I can like feel like my like superhero cape kind of like waving a little bit. <laughs> I don't think the kids were actually cheering, but in my head, you know. <laughs> and so he goes off, and um, and and so then what comes of all this? Using the the pictures and the um, the those dirty water samples, um, they were actually able to pin the polluter on the city of Terrytown. The municipal sewage plant was dumping this, and it was making its way undetected into the abandoned Croton aqueduct that goes through like all these urban places and then comes down to Yonkers and then made its way into the Sawmill Creek and then down into the Hudson. And this is one of those classic examples of environmental injustice where this like affluent um, town was sending their waste downriver to a lower income community. And it really raised a lot of um, 
you know, voices. So Clearwater and um, Riverkeeper and the local press all started kind of coming together in unison and speaking out against this. And the result was that Terrytown stopped dumping and made a very public um, apology for what they did. And yeah. Yeah, so my first time being an environmental superhero went pretty well. <laughs> but if it hadn't been for those kids that day that were standing around, you know, with their mouths agape looking at me like, every individual can make a difference. <laughs> I don't think without them, I don't think I ever would have taken that first step off the boat and into the wilds of Yonkers. Thank you. <laughs> Maya Nemisto. With the crew and education team of the Clearwater, Maya spent almost 10 years living on the Hudson and teaching about the tidal estuary. The Story Collider is so grateful to Silita and Maya for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Erin Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with managing producer Misha Gajewski and senior podcast editor Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, operations manager Lindsay Cooper, and education director Lily B., without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Jesse Hildebrand, Elian Fairbairn, and Nissa Greenberg, and by Ben Lilly and me, Aaron Barker, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. As always, thanks for listening. Next week, the amazing Catherine Wu will be debuting as a Story Collider host, bringing you a truly delightful story about Wolverines and then digging into the science behind it with an interview as well. You won't want to miss it. Mm-hmm.